Welcome to The Silenced American, a podcast that pushes conversation about undocumented issues facing the community. This season, we're spending time with documented individuals learning and dialoguing through what Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals actually means for folks across the diaspora. I'm Fabiola Madrigal. And I'm Amy Dominguez, and we'll be doing our best to guide these conversations in a way that is both informative and impactful. So welcome back. We are in studio again. Amy is here. Say hi, Amy. Hola. And we are in studio with Ella Mendoza. She is a local organizer and badass here in Salt Lake City. Um, and she's also organized with groups around the nation. And so, Ella, can you introduce yourself to everybody? Um, in my Nala, uh, thank you all so much for having me. My name is Ella Mendoza, and um, I am an undocumented immigrant um, artist and organizer here in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, when did your family move to Salt Lake City? Um, well, so my story is a little bit of a weird one. So um, my father kidnapped me, took me away from my mother when I was 12 years old um, because he had his own ideas of what was best for me and what was best for our family. Um, growing up, I, I grew up with a family of mixed racial status. Um, my father was lighter skinned, but he was still brown. My mother was brown, but she came from the hood. Um, she grew up really, really poor in this barrio called Independencia out in Lima. And um, she didn't have a lot of access to stuff growing up, you know? Her father, my grandfather, he came from the Amazonian rainforest. He just came from this little village and walked through mountains and hitchhiked and got on a bus and, and, and made it to the big city. And my grandmother, she came to the city as a servant. So my, my growing up, my grandparents, they didn't really have a lot of access to money or wealth, but they had each other and they had seven children and it was just a really beautiful, well put together family, right? So when my father met my mother, he was kind of shocked, I guess, about just what poverty, just about the difference between poverty in one region of Lima and poverty in another region of Lima, and especially poverty in the mountains versus poverty in the city. And so he didn't, I don't know how to, I don't know how to describe it. He didn't really know how to cope with it well, I guess I would say, but um, he decided that the only way to really like be a good wealthy person was to really discard your identity as indigenous. And um, he knew Quechua, just like all of my family spoke Quechua, but he stopped speaking it and then he would make fun of indigenous people. It, it was just really interesting growing up because my family is indigenous from many different sides, but there's this really big belief in Lima that if you discard your identity and you just become this whitewashed person, this whitewashed city person, that everything will be okay. So growing up, my father married my mother, who was this girl from the hood, and he just kind of swept her up in her feet, and um, they started building a home together. And then... Um, some investments went wrong and he didn't have a lot of money all of a sudden. 
So he started making some decisions quick. The banks were coming after him. It was so intense. Wow. I would um come home and people would be like, where's your dad? And I'd be like, oh, mom, I don't know what's happening, you know? And um, I remember at one point as a little kid playing matchup games with all of his credit cards. There were at least 20, I remember, in the safe deposit box. And there was just a lot of stuff in my childhood that I was like, this is not normal. And um, it led to my father saying, um, we're going to go to the United States because this is the only way I can see us having a safe, stable life. And I didn't realize it, but what he meant was, I'm going to take you somewhere where you can become someone that you're not. And um, in that process, he decided to cut off communications between me and my mother for over a decade. And... Um, that led to me being separated from my mother for about 13 years. Wow. And I know recently you were able to see your mom. Tell us about that. Yeah. So when I, when I, um, so growing up here in Utah, first of all, well, Utah is a hell of a place to just grow up. Um, I became aware of a lot of these power dynamics, right? Mm -hmm. Between like, oh, okay, lighter skinned people get to do whatever they want. Darker skinned people, we just kind of, you know, get thrown out to the side. And then depending on like even the positionality, where you grew up, how hood were you, um, it just kind of set up those dynamics, right? So really early on, I really liked activism and organizing. When, um, when I was 19 years old, I ran away from home and I wound up on the streets. I was living on the streets, really, really depressed, really freaking out, you know, um, and then life turned around for me when the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program came out. So then I applied for DACA. I got it. I started rolling with a lot of like badass activist organizers, the crew that really had like helped make DACA happen, like, you know, here, but also like all over all over the country. There were so many folks, you know, like really meeting each other, getting excited about each other. And um yeah, it was those very same organizers who decided to fundraise for my mom and me to reunite. And um, yeah, it was it was amazing. It was wonderful seeing my mom again for the first time in, you know, 13 years. It, it made me cry. It made me like happy. It made me really like just like understand how like different all of our struggles are that for some folks, you know, it's like, I got DACA and I got to go to college, or I got DACA and I got to fly home to advance parole. But for me, it was like, I got DACA and I started building my life from the bottom. I got to see my mom for the first time in over a decade. I got to climb out of homelessness. I got to experience what it meant having my own home space for the very first time. It was, it, it's something that like, really changed my life and impacted me in the ways that like it made it so that folks it made it so I could meet folks and I could like actually tell them like yo this happened to me so you talked about um receiving DACA and kind of going from the state of homelessness into a state of like just getting your basic needs met right mm -hmm. um what was that like when you were able to do that um were you First off, were you 19 when DACA was rolled out? No, I was on the streets for a very long time. I was on the streets from the time I was 19 until the time I was 21, 22 almost. Um, I dated a man who would hold up a knife to me and tell me how he would kill me. 
I did so many things in order to survive, things that I didn't want to do. My body hurts, honestly, like from all of the things that happened from that period when I was on the streets until DACA came out. That, those years are so horrible, so sacred in so many ways because it meant meeting a lot of people and understanding just how many people out there legit do not care for undocumented people. Mm -hmm. It just really meant like understanding how many people straight up will kick you to the trash once they know you're undocumented. And I don't think I've ever told anybody that, but that's just literally like what happened because nobody cared. Nobody cared. I would tell people my story and they cared to an extent, but they didn't care long enough to host me. To, to, to house me too. I remember meeting this Mormon family that they told me they cared for, I want to say like three months. And once those three months were up, they were just like, you've been here for a really long time now. The This one woman, she put my documents in a lockbox and she told me I couldn't get them until I paid her for all of the food I had eaten while staying in her home. It, nobody cared. It really had been the whole time just you owe us for being homeless. You owe us for being destroyed. I didn't ask for my life to be destroyed. I didn't ask for my father to kidnap me. I didn't ask for my father to abuse me. I didn't ask for the house where I lived in to become somewhere where I could no longer be. Living on the streets as a teenager is not... I know Hollywood glamorizes it as like, you know freedom but it's it's so awful it's so hard and i'm lucky that i made it out the way that i did because i know so many people that didn't i know so many people that it affected them and daca came out on i think it was it was 2012 2013 mm -hmm. yeah yeah i was on the streets from the time around 2009. wow that's a long time um, and I think in well, people we've talked to before, when they talk about DACA, it's like, oh, like I was really struggling to like get an education or like find a job. And I think your narrative is so different to that. They don't know struggle. They don't know struggle. Like, I'm sorry, like you do not. If you think that like you were struggling to find an education, you were struggling to like, I'm sorry about you. That That's that's a cute, happy life. Like, I'm just going to tell you right now. Because you at least had a family. You at least had an idea of what you could do. I wish I, I wish I had had the things that so many people see as, like, not enough. You know? I wish mm -hmm. I had gotten to grow up with my mother. <sighs> Being an undocumented immigrant straight up robbed me of 12 years with my mom. Mm -hmm. Being an undocumented immigrant straight up robbed me of having a childhood. I I think that people really romanticize this idea of like, and then DACA gave us everything. And it's like some of us didn't have nothing before DACA mm -hmm. came out. And that all DACA gave us was access to the idea that we could have everything. And maybe that's why they call us dreamers, because, you know, it's good to dream and it feels beautiful to dream. And it does make me feel excited. But sometimes, I don't know, I have I have a lot of regrets, you know? Like, I think, like, I didn't do enough with DACA. 
especially when they see pictures of like you know like people getting out of college and being so happy i'm just like shit i didn't do enough but it's like i don't i don't know if that's true Ella. i think there's like this really weird notion to this american dream of like if you if you fight hard enough you're gonna get it but i think that's not true yep i think that's not true i think it's more that there are a bunch of people around you and we all deserve freedom we all deserve a world where we're not questioned for our status for the way that we talk for the way that we look and we don't have that world we don't live in that world instead we live in a world where they will give you these titles these permits this paperwork and be like here you go here's some hoops and people are so excited to jump through the hoops mm -hmm. people are so excited to get that like merit badge at the end of it and that's what i mean at least for me at first it wasn't like that but eventually once i started like you know realizing who like who's less stressed out about losing their DACA than others you know I realized like whoa this is a game for some of y'all you know like some of y'all could straight up like just kind of do whatever you want for me I'm filling out this application in my little room that I just got because I just got my first job ever in my life because growing up on the streets everyone questioned me about my papers because of the way I looked yeah and I think when you talk about that, it goes back to the social construct that you have to earn everything to be able to be worthy enough to have it. And then once they give you something like DACA, which is not enough, then you still have to work so much harder to keep it and to like fit their mold of what they wanted out of the program. I can't believe we live in a world where people straight up like charge other humans for water like charge other humans like here I know you need this to live but I'm gonna charge you for this water I also can't believe we live in a world where people are like I know you need this to survive but here you need to pay 495 every two years and you need to fill out all these mm -hmm. forms and if you don't fill them out right well too bad you know and I think that with DACA it really did like set this bar of if you if you do this you're gonna get this and if you get this you're a good human being mm -hmm. and that's so disgusting to me something i don't talk about often is that my brother didn't qualify for daca my brother and i we ran away from the same abusive household at pretty much exactly the same time we slept in the same shelters we lived the same life he the he didn't like the streets, so he wound up moving out to New York and living with an uncle of mine that we found after everything had happened. And now we live so far apart, but I talk to him almost every single day. He didn't qualify for DACA. We filled out our forms exactly the same. But there were some gaps in mine, some gaps in his. You know, when you're living on the streets, you don't... You don't have documentation keeping track of you. You mm -hmm. don't have healthcare keeping track of you. When you live a life in the shadows, all of a sudden you're supposed to disclose everything that you've ever lived. And that's what I'm saying. Some people really did be living out here in the shadows. Some people really did do that. For some of us, it was not about like it's selling in school so we could go to college. For some of us, it was surviving school and hoping no one would call the cops on us. 
I never got DACA. And now it's been years. And I'm out here living my life. The fact that I get to be an artist, like, makes me sometimes wake up and just kind of cry in shock. But he doesn't get that life. He gets to wake up every single day at 7 a.m., get on two different trains to go to Brooklyn. He gets to wash clothes, be next to a heater that's too hot. He gets to tell his boss that he doesn't understand certain things, but he will do his best. His boss tells him that he should just go to college. He gets one day off a week. <laughs> he doesn't know what he's doing with his life. <laughs> I, try to, I try to help him every time I go to New York to see him. He tells me how different his life would have been if he had qualified for DACA. My mom calls him. We don't have anybody. We have our mom in South America, and that's it. Sometimes people ask me, why don't you just go back? You're so sad. You're so tired, because then maybe it wouldn't have been worth it. And besides, we both love it so much already. We both, we love living here. We love the idea of building home. We love the idea of building home. There are so many people like my brother out there. There are so many people like my brother out there. I talk to them every time I talk to him. Every time he tells me how he's so happy that I'm coming over to make sure that it lands on a Sunday because it's his one day off. So it's the one day he wants to go ahead and show me around the city. I, I really, really, really wish I had a good answer to tell him when he asked me why does he think he didn't qualify, but I don't. There, there's no good answer. There's no good thing to tell someone when they didn't finish the race that you were supposed to finish. Who would pit people in a game for the right to water? Who would pit people up against each other for the right to food, to adjust life? And I think in today's age, like we talk about family separation and a lot of people talk about family separation at the border or... Um, your family and like other countries but I think what's interesting and really I really appreciate about your story is that there's family separation even within here in the U.S. and it it happens because people get put in these situations like you have with your brother of somebody qualifies and somebody doesn't and that separates people even if it is within the U.S. like to have that and to feel I don't think it's to feel, but to be separated because somebody else felt like it wasn't enough for him to get it, that that makes me so angry. It's It makes me so angry every time he asks me how my life is and tells me how I'm the good one in the family. It's so ridiculous. He is the smartest person I know. He is the best person I know. Ella, I'm sure that there's a lot of guilt associated when you speak with him 
guilt as far as something that you were able to get that he wasn't able to get, right? What, how do you cope with that? Or what are ways that you work through that on really difficult discussions? We both lived on the streets in that same way. And now we both have to like deal with this life, you know? I think there is a lot of guilt. I really do. Sometimes I try to compensate by it by like buying him food and shit. <laughs> I'll be like, I'll treat you out to dinner. I love you. Oh my gosh, you know, but I think it also like we're good about it. Especially like activism really helped us. At first he used to think LA, you're just rocking the boat. I don't understand why you go to all these protests. Like, you don't need to do that. You have DACA. Live a happy life now. You know, settle. And um, so I, I personally think that settling is for settlers. I think that my ancestors did not fight colonization all the way down all of our bloodlines. My grandfather got arrested at a protest. The one that came from the rainforest, he was getting down. And my grandfather on my father's side, he was a socialist. He, I was raised in revolutionary ideas. So me and my brother will talk about these things, you know, and at first he used to be a little bit like, I'm not trying to rock the boat. I'm just trying to, you know, like mm -hmm. do my best, work my work my job <laughs> for six, you know, six days a week. And um, just, you know, not do that. But then I told him, I was like, don't you think there's more to life than just working? Don't you think there's more to life than just, you know, like coming home tired? I think about him and I think about most of our, you know, most of our families, most mm -hmm. of our parents. We grew up watching our family, our tired moms or our tired dads coming home super tired. And, you know, I think it shapes us as humans. I think there is a responsibility for DACA recipients to, like, think about that. You know, think about, like, who fought for you to have those rights that you now go home with? Mm. And did they fight for you to just settle with it? Did they fight for you to just sit down with it? Yeah. <laughs> Something else that I would want to know, Ella, is I wonder where people that are new, let's say there's someone that's listening to this podcast and they're like, wow, Ella is 100% right. I have all of these privileges. What can I do? Where would you recommend that they start? I mean, so I like, <laughs> I really like this Frida Kahlo quote. She's like, I need to get better. I need to, you know, take care of my health because revolution is really like the only reason for me to like continue living. Um, and the reason I like about that is because most people think of Frida Kahlo as this painter, right? Or as this mujer that like is just, oh, she has the unibrow and she, and she likes to paint, right? And she has her monkey. But when I think of Frida Kahlo, I think of a communist, you know? She was dope. She was like really into the revolution. She and her husband and like a bunch of other folks like they would organize really really hard and um and myself you know i'm an anarchist um and the reason why i got turned into like different leftist politics was because i want to dream of a world without borders i want to dream of a world without cages i want to dream of a world without volition and i want to dream of a world where we don't have to jump through hoops just to get to each other when you say that i feel like a lot of self-worth is put on whether you have DACA or not and whether you qualified or not. I don't know if you feel the same way, but that's what I keep thinking about. Right. But that's what I'm saying. And that's what helps me with conversations with my brother is understanding that we are both 
just as just humans. We are both just as deserving of this world. So really, when we start leaving the whole original kind of reformist um, theories and going into abolitionist theories of like, oh, we do deserve that world without borders, without cages, and also we deserve a world without DACA, then we start talking about like, how do we make that world happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think a lot of people don't realize that it's a social construct to like do all of these things and get all of these things. Does that make sense? Like there's some basic humanity in that and people don't understand like what humanity means is that everybody deserves to have like a good life and not only that i think there are so many things that make me angry about daca but one that i will never get over is the way that the government holds daca recipients as political yep. pawns mm-hmm. right. that forever it's it's like not fair you know like people are people like you can't they're not like this transaction that you can pull out when you need like people are people that's all i'm saying right and people are not just you know to be used for a political game of like cat and mouse because at this point it really has been like who's which politician sucks worse you know like or which politician they all suck right right and so folks will like continue to you know like try to spread this narrative to like become like well, I'm not being used. I'm just a good person or I'm not being used. I'm I deserve this, you know. But what makes you think that you deserve this more than this other person? I'm telling you, I was literally the person on the streets. If you looked at me, you would have thought like that kid's not going anywhere. And at one point we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to think of other people like that? You know, yeah. like who gets to decide who's going where and why aren't you helping them go somewhere with you? Why do we treat other people like human garbage? And why is it okay that politicians drew this invisible line between us and then basically asked us to hop and see who could hop the forest, you know? That's messed up. That's wrong. And it's between families, you know? I'm really glad that you named that. Yeah, people talk about family separation, like something going on at the border. No, it's happening in families across this country. We're seeing mid-status families, people with like completely different lives. And I'm sorry, I'm not the kind of person that can just be like, oh, well, too bad. I got it. You didn't. Bye. That, that's, that's wrong. And just be like satisfied with that, like. I I have it. My life is okay. So whatever they do now, like it's up to them. Like I don't understand how people can can be that way because it excludes such a large part of our community. Right. They're like, how can you just be satisfied with you being okay and all these other people not being okay? Because it's settler colonialism. Yeah. It's this idea of like settling down, settling in the system, settling in. There's a lot of faces to settler colonialism, and one of them is assimilation. But people don't think about it that way. People think about like, oh, well, Europeans came over. It's already been done. No, you're continuing that process. You're part of the process. Mm-hmm. You're helping our people get colonized every single time you settle back into the system and you decide that this is the way that things should be. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm saying when I talk about my story as like living on the streets and like having all of these things happen to me is I want you to know that there are people out there just like me, people out there who deserve a just life, who deserve water, who deserve access to health care and who will not get it unless something radically changes in the way that we talk about community 
and in the way that we talk about moving forward and fighting back. I want to talk a little bit more about community, Ella, because I think everyone in Salt Lake knows you. (laughs) (laughs) And I think you have built an incredible community, but you have done that with your art. And so I would love to spend some time talking about that, how you were able to build this community with the beautiful work that you do. If you haven't checked out the beautiful artwork that Ella has done, that's something you need to put on your to-do list as soon as possible. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, for sure. And so I know you also asked the question about how do folks get involved. So I think that folks can get involved with um, really like intentionally just looking for movement, Mm -hmm. right? So when I talk about movement, what what I think about movement is I think of this beautiful, big, like rolling kind of like rolling stone kind of thing, you know, like everyone's pushing this rock along. And people are like, where are you going? And we're like, I mean, we don't know yet, but you got to help us. Otherwise, like, we're, it's not going to move, right? So I also think of movement as this kind of like people-powered, like gigantic button bicycle that like people jump on and people hop off. But it needs to keep rolling. Otherwise, like, we're never going to reach our destination. So, um, and a lot of my beliefs come from like abolitionist praxis, which is like, Harry Tubman was an abolitionist, you know, people that like believe in not the reform of cages and prisons, but the abolition, the ending of cages and prisons are abolitionists. And even the current abolish ice movement, that's an abolitionist movement. So um, I got involved in the movement through going to protest as a younger, as a younger, super like borderline homeless kid being basically like, hey, I just got DACA. Can I help in any way this amazing, beautiful thing, you know? And people would say, yeah, can you help us make the flyer? Can you help us draw the banner, right? Um, Because they knew that I was, uh, that art was something that I really loved. So I started drawing the banners, I started making the flyers, and then other folks would see it and be like, whoa, I really like what you did there. Would you mind designing the flyer for our group? And so I started meeting all of these different groups. Um, I have had the pleasure and honor to work with big groups such as People's Climate March doing marches in Washington, D.C., or Mi Gente doing marches in um, San Diego on top of the detention center. Um, Literally just gotten the amazing opportunity to work with folks all across the country. And I think um, the reason why I got that was because they heard my story and they knew somebody like me. They knew that in at one point in their life they had met someone like me or even that they were me. And I think we did a really good job of finding each other and realizing that across these borders and across different aspects of race and class and gender and sexuality, all of us knew each other's struggle in one way or another. So now I'm, I'm really blessed because I get to, you're right, I do know a lot of people and a lot of us know each other and we get to fight together. We get to fight and build community. Um, I think sometimes movement gets romanticized too as like, oh, you're an activist. That means you go out into the streets and you yell at people. And it's like, no, that means I talk to my neighbors. That means I check in with people. That means I build community across spectrums. Building community can look like even making a meal and just checking to make sure that your friends are still alive or talking to each other or making a podcast. 
making community is something that's so important and intentional. And it's really the only way that we can defeat these lacks of connection around us. Because I think what the intention with DACA was is none of these kids are going to talk to each other. They're just going to roll with it and get DACA and then go and become Americans. But it's like, no, fuck you. I, I decide what I want to do with my life. And if we get to decide something more beautiful, something more radical than just trying to outshine each other, I think that's a really big, beautiful, powerful thing, you know? Yeah, I think um, meeting people where they're at, right? I think I, I tell this to Amy all the time. It's kind of something that, that we focus on when we do any type of work or when we have any event is like meeting people where they're at and like centering, centering it around the person and the people that we're doing the work for right like we never want to have an event that's inaccessible for an undocumented person like what's the point of having the event you know Mm -hmm. um so going back to what you were talking about with organizing I think a lot of it can be like this burnout culture like you have to keep going and you just have to do as much as you can and you like can't stop and a lot of people get burned out so what I really appreciate about you and the organizing you do it's like you're like, we're going to do this, but also I'm going to take like a week break because I need to just take care of myself. I want to add to that and also say that what I think is remarkable about Ella is that they are really comfortable in sharing their vulnerability, you know, and I think activists out there, organizers, organizers out there feel that they have to put on this front, right? I'm always busy. I'm always working. No time to rest. I got to do all these things. I'm going to do all these things. I'm tired and I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to ignore my feelings. And there's shame around that, right? If you're not doing that, then that's shameful. Right. And I think what Ella does so well, especially if you follow Ella on Instagram, Ella's consistently talking about, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I have been doing this work for so long and it is defeating And I just really value that you do that because I think there's a perception of the way that organizers and activists are. And I think there's value in showing that, no, you're not always strong. You're not always at 100%, but that doesn't mean that you're going to stop completely or cold turkey and take a break, but you'll keep going. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that when I, when I think about, again, so when I think about the movement, I really do think it and think of it as this thing that. You're going to hop off for a little bit, but you got to hop back on. Mm -hmm. I really do believe that settling is for settlers. Like if you're settling down, if you're already planning your long term plan of like, this is how beautiful and wonderful my life is going to be. And I'm never going to worry about everyone around me who is worrying about everything around them. Then it's it's I think it's a selfish act, you know. And so for me, um, doing these things like being part of the movement is no, I don't know if I would say it like an act of selflessness or whatever. I don't I don't believe in like hero complexes or whatever. But I do see it as kind of like it's my love language, you know? Like I love people enough to keep fighting for them even through my mental health collapses or as I like continue to struggle with my shit. But also it's our responsibility to take care of each other, right? I really like this um quote that says it is our duty to fight for our freedom it is our duty to win we must love each other and take care of each other we have nothing to lose but our chains and um and that quotes by asada shakur who was persecuted by the american government and straight up is now on the fbi watch list as this dangerous woman well really all that she did was she was trying to fight for her freedom you know 
And sometimes when I get really like hopeless, really like, you know, just kind of like I'm done. I'm so tired because I am. I'm super tired. It's been many, many years since um since I joined the movement. Um, it's been around six years. Um, and in those years, I have been attacked by cops at Standing Rock, attacked by cops in New York, <laughs> chased chased out of institutions. You know, all this all this shit has happened to me. Um, and I, and I think it's about pace. I think um movement is really more like a marathon than like a short race so you know even as you're like taking breaks you gotta like pace yourself and like set that intention that like you're gonna be done with this break and you're gonna get back on it because otherwise like who's who's gonna take over our take care of our youth you know who's gonna be there when we're no longer there i think about that so often every time i'm tempted to quit another younger activist will pull me back in just by asking questions, just by asking like, wait, how do you do this? How do you do that? And I'll understand that my role can change as I grow older. I sometimes joke with my friends telling them like, people be calling me auntie. I'm turning 30 next year. I'm going to be a movement auntie. And it makes me so excited because that that that's there's nothing more blissful to me, more wonderful than to continue on this legacy of our people, you know? I think... um yeah it is hard yeah it does suck but it's part of the journey and let's be genuine about it right like i would never never like lie about how tired i am because then that's well then what do you do with that who who takes care of you if you're not open open and honest who who who's gonna take care and if anything you're setting unachievable goals to folks you know People ask me all the time, like, how do you do this? How do you do that? And I want to be honest with them. Like, this is how it's done. It's a lot of sweat and tears and a lot of work, but it's so worth it at the end. Um, Earlier, you were talking about open borders, and I know that's very controversial to people. Um, So can you tell us more about what that looks like to you? I think there needs to be an abolition of borders, of prisons, of cages. And I know that's also like controversial to people, the idea of like open borders. But the same people that are confused about open borders are the same people that don't understand it when we talk about a world without police. It's because people cannot picture that world where cops aren't just hunting down your homies. People cannot picture a world where we can just go in and out of a country. Those are kind of things where... Listen, I know people that like, you know, especially some of these Trump folks, the Trump, the the guys that wear the Trump 2020 hats and they'll come to the rallies and they'll be like, yeah, y'all are crazy trying to push open borders on us and shit. I'm like, no, you crazy. You came over here with all your people, brought all of this famine, brought all of this, all all of this diseases, and now you coming over here and telling us what we should do, what we should not do on this land. This ain't even your land. You're on stolen land. And if you're pretending that putting borders on stolen land is gonna fix anything, you're lying. You're lying to yourself because you're not looking at the absurdity, at the ridiculousness that is what you're asking for you know people that push against the whole open borders or people that even like try to talk about these things as that they're black and white it's like you're not looking at the spectrum of time you're not looking at the vision of our ancestors you know my grandfather grew up in a village where you couldn't access it by cars you had to go in by motorcycle or on foot 
because of how narrow the roads are because it's in the rainforest next to the river but people talk about that like it's something like so exotic so far away it's land it's land the land that is north and south to us it needs to be taken care of if you put a wall there that river will have nowhere to flow those children will have nowhere to go the leaves, the grass, the environment, that will all be changed. It's not even about like, don't put borders around this place because of ethic. It's also because of morality. It's also because of logic. Don't put borders around the place because nobody belongs in a cage. Human beings don't belong in cages. Yeah. Um, you also talked earlier about um, like people call DACA recipients dreamers. Um, and like you, you spoke a little bit to that and why everybody dreams. Um, but I know that, that there's also a lot of critiques surrounding the dreamer narrative. So can you talk a little bit about that? I think that the dreamer narrative is something that like, you know, folks talk about these kids like came here and they didn't know better. I just want you to know, I mean, I was 12. I did know a little better. I definitely knew when like, you know, my, my, my parents were all like, hey, just tell them we're going for a vacation. I was like, yeah, we're just coming here for a vacation. You know what I'm saying? But also, I think even if you were a baby that didn't know better, like, you're here now. Why throw your family under the bus? Mm -hmm. Why talk about, you know, like, it was my parents that did the illegal thing, not me. Save me, white Jesus. You know, like, who who are you? Who's going to save you? Who are you talking to? You're going to go be pals with Uncle Sam and be like, I renounce everything that my family did. That's some weird stuff. I know that um, the LDS Church said that, how it was like, oh, if you renounce your parents' choice, if your family's gay, you can be, still be part of the church. And I remember reading that and be like, that's some dreamer bullshit, you know? That's like straight up. You're trying to get these kids to denounce their family's choices, and that's the only way... They're targeting a generation at that point. They're straight up asking you to like denounce what your family did in order to save your little ass. Maybe you weren't worth saving, you know? I'm just saying, if you're over here like talking about how, well, I did this, I lived a life of truthfulness and goody goodness, who got you here? Who crossed the desert for you? And now you're just going to go ahead and be like, oh, well, I'm so good. And I deserve a college education. Fuck you. I deserve a lot of things in this life. You don't think I deserve a lot of things in this life? I do. I'm going to get them. But I'm just saying, like, we all deserve those good things. True. I think it also, there's also a lot of added pressure, you know, mm -hmm. to fit this dreamer narrative exactly what Ella was saying, you know, you have to fit this narrative of I'm going to school, I'm going to go to work, you know, you have to fit the bill in some way. And I think in that way, the dreamer narrative can be really divisive. You have to be disappointed in the streets and Uncle Sam on the sheets. I swear. <laughs> it's crazy. It's like you have to be all like American dream, but at the same time, not too much, not too real. You have to. Oh, my gosh. It's so no, I've met some of these motherfuckers when I've been traveling. I'll meet people that will be like, wow, I was I so jive with your story because DACA saved your life and it saved mine. Before DACA, I was gonna go to community college, but now I get to go to a four-year institution. <laughs> I'm just really shut up, homeboy. You're not real. <laughs> I 
I think about my own family and the dreamer narrative really irks me because like when people say like your parents should have known better and I think about it and I'm like you mean my parents should have known better just stay in like poverty and like not want a better life or not want something different or not want to try something different like that really irks me because like my family's my world and everything I've ever done for them is for them um, and everything I ever do is because they're so important to me. So when somebody talks about my family like that, it's like, like, you want to throw it down, bitch? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's so like, it's just upsetting to me. Something else that I think that I that I always reflect on now is whenever I talk about it a lot, whenever we're fundraising or doing something like that, I'm like, this family has children, you know. But I think something that I fail to mention is don't our parents deserve to dream? Like, sure, they wanted to give us a better life and give Mm -hmm. us a better opportunity. But don't our parents deserve to dream as well? And I think it goes back to what you were talking about earlier. Like, DACA for you was, like, just being able to, like, do the things that, like, normal people should have, you know? (laughs) And it's, like, with our parents, it's, like, for some reason... Like, they're only allowed to dream in this, like, very restricted for way. For your children. Yes. You're dreaming for your children, not for yourself. Yes. And I remember, so just the other day, my dad asked me, like, what do you really want to be in your life? Like, it doesn't have to do with money, but what do you want to do? And, like, I was like, oh, well, like, I want to be a therapist and I want to do all these things. And I was like, and I, I can do that. And he's like, all I wanted to do was be a mechanic. And he's like, I, I know I'm never going to be able to do that. And it broke my heart. Because my dad is my world. And to know that he couldn't be a mechanic, like, that shit that people scoff at now. And so, I don't know. That just, like, broke my heart. Yeah. No, that's, I relate to that a lot. When I talk to my mom, I tell her, like, what are the things that you wish would have happened differently? And she tells me all the time, I just wish I would have been able to keep you. I just wish I would have been able to grow up with you. Um. Or, like, like, see their parents for the last time. Like, my parents weren't able to do that. And it breaks it breaks both of their hearts every day. My grandfather died, um, and I didn't get to see him. I didn't get to go to the funeral. He, he taught me medicines from the rainforest growing up as a kid. He taught me so much, and I miss him. And I wish I, wish I had been able to go back to my country to see him. Um, and I think about that so much about how these are the things that we're being robbed of you know not it's not even about opportunities sometimes it's about moments it's about the right the right to have access to those moments the right to have access to yearning I yearn for a land that I can barely remember and the fact that I have to have this choice of either you stay stay or you go go it's 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 just really it's it's really the meaning the idea that i don't have mobility of choice i don't have mobility of of opportunity i don't get the same opportunities as other people do and that doesn't have to even do with that because some days some days it has to do with the color of my skin or who or how I came into this country mm-hmm. and just like the access you have to resources or the access you have to other people who have those resources like everything is set up around this 
the system that you have to have, like that's why people network, right? It's because mm-hmm. if you know people, you get things. Mm-hmm. And so we're set up, a lot of people are set up to fail in that system because we restrict all of these access to people and resources. And it's, that system should just not exist. Right. Um, and then the dreamer narrative makes it really even harder because then as an activist, you're supposed to be that good, empowered dreamer. Come on now, you already get over it. Like you you, you should be like talking to politicians. You should be. I ain't never seen in the in the past few years being in the movement, I ain't never seen like the movement really like approach like electoral politics the way that I wish it would, you know? Mm-hmm. Instead, it really is seen as like, oh, you're a dreamer, great. Ergo, you must be doing immigration work. Oh, great, you're doing immigration work. Ergo, you must be trying to get laws passed. Where's the autonomous work, you know? Some of us are just straight up like doing really important work supporting the undocumented community here. Some of us are just running to get food for our, for our people. Some of us are just helping moms like get groceries because they're afraid to go grocery shopping. Exactly. That work is so, so important, so, so crucial to fuel a movement, but people overlook it as not glamorous enough or yeah. not trendy enough. And you gotta be a Washington DC holding a picket sign in order to yeah. be valued. And it's I wanna sens- <laughs> sensationalized. And you yeah. and I were talking about this last night. Fabi and I had a really good conversation last night over some wine about about some activists and organizers that devalue quote unquote small acts, yeah. right? Yesterday, I got a call while I was at work from a mom that we're helping, and you could tell that she was having a really hard trouble breathing. And when she called me, she was like, hi, I can't afford my prescription. Um, Is there any way that you can go and pick it up for me and bring it to me? And I'm at work, and I can't leave, and I hate it. And I'm like, yes, I, I will do this for you, but I don't get off work until five. Do you think you can hold on? And she was like, oh, sí, mija, ni te preocupes cuando puedas, you know, and that just, you know, it shatters me because I, she's struggling to breathe. I can mm-hmm. tell that she's struggling to breathe. So I reached out to our network and I'm like, is anyone available right now to go pick up this medicine and take it to her? She really needs it. She says she can wait, but I, I can just, I can hear it in her voice, right? So one of our, one of our allies was like, I'll do it right now, goes and does it. And I'm like, how are you going to? devalue something that directly affects someone's life that way you know someone might be like oh it's just like you just run to the store and get someone's medicine but something like that is so impactful yeah Yeah, I agree like I've been working with this man that's in the detention center in Colorado and like sometimes he calls me and I'm like I don't know I don't know if I can get you out of there I don't know and he's like, it's okay. Like, we just have to be patient. And he's like comforting me. I'm like, don't comfort me. I should be comforting you. Um, but he has so much hope. And and like, all he needs is to talk to me. And like, that's all we do is like talk. And he tells me about what he's doing and about his family. And I feel like that makes a difference for him because he calls me almost every day and we just we just talk. I want to add to that and say, I guess just to whoever's out there listening, if anyone's out there listening, I think the whole point of this conversation is it doesn't matter how quote unquote small or if you don't have that much time, if you can run to the grocery store. We have another case where we had someone that was 
suicidal, you know, and just checking in and reaching out and sending messages and saying, hi, how are you? I care about you. Can I come see you? Can I be with you? It doesn't have to be exactly what Ella's saying. You don't have to go to Washington, D.C. to do life-changing work. It can start here and it can start with just reaching out. So if anyone out there is looking to get involved, it doesn't have to be this this grandiose, huge, big effort. It can be so small. And so it's just so important. Do something. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be huge. You don't have to organize a giant protest. It can be so much as reaching out to someone in need. And find the value in that, right? I think we, we put people on a pedestal that are like in Washington, D.C. and like in the front lines and that are on TV and giving interviews. And like the reality of it is there's so many people that we don't see and we don't recognize that really push things forward and help people on a level that like people don't think is significant. And I that really frustrates me. And I know I share this with you all the time, Amy, is like there's there's people behind everything you see and Mm -hmm. There's people getting people out of detention centers and raising bail money and like literally just trying to prevent people from being deported. And a lot of the times we only see who's on TV and we like idolize them and we put them on this pedestal and like we don't recognize that community does that. And there's so many people behind those faces that are on TV. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's frustrating to me. Yeah. Yeah, and the real front lines are often in your own hood, you know? Mm -hmm. The real front lines are really, like, just right there with the people that are getting left behind. And that's why when I talk about, you know, movement work, for me, I don't think of the movement as the people that are on, you know, whose faces are most visible on Instagram or, you know, who is over there in the big cities, like, amping it up. I think of movement as this really beautiful thing that it has to be autonomous you know Mm -hmm. it has to come from autonomy and autonomia for me it's um autonomia del pueblo you know Mm -hmm. which to me was explained by a homie of mine from chapas that said um it's not auton people will tell you in western society that autonomy means self-care and selfies and take care of yourself but autonomy means the autonomy of a community what would happen if the government started attacking your community right now? How would you react? How would you respond? How would you take care of one another? You know, and that's really something that like people have to get with because we are under attack. Our community is already under attack. Undocumented folks don't have the right, the, the ability to like move around as other folks do. So how are we reacting to that? How are we taking care of each other? The time is now, and we can't rely on these institutions to take care of undocumented people. Where the the fact that they label us illegal, it should give you a choice. You know, like it should give you like a an idea of like the kind of persecution we're really seeing here. Is the only people that are going to help us are us. So we need to set up those systems of and those networks of care for each other right now. And that does start with honestly, like as simple as checking in with your neighbor and making sure that they have enough groceries. Yeah, yeah, in community, because I know, I know the person you're talking about, Amy, and I know there was at least like five of us involved in that. And just like being able to connect with everybody else and like being able to pull together for this one person and Mm -hmm. how valuable that is, because like every, every person is important. Um, So I really value what you were saying. I just really appreciate you. Um, So one last question. 
what else do you want people to know and what advice would you give them after our conversation today? Um, just, you know, keep fighting. Just again, like keep fighting, whatever that fight is, like keep fighting it, you know, but just remember that your actions will, will, you know, have an effect on others is ripples, the ripples of the water, all of these ripples are just going to connect us to each other. So you're, you're a person of a community, you know, look around you, look at who needs help and look at ways to plug in. There's so many ways to plug in for reals. Like it really, it really does start small as they see as, you know, like helping out at the food pantry and as even harder as starting your own food pantry. <laughs> Goals. So how can people plug in with you, Ella? Where can people find you? Um, well, you can find me on my website, ellamendoza.com. Um, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Kuruchitex. That's K-U-R-U-C-H-I-T-X. And um, this is the name my grandfather gave me. A lot of people don't know that's what it means. Um, but yeah, just, you know, plug in, check in. Um, I would love to talk to folks whenever about the various projects that are going on in Salt Lake City, as well as the various regional projects we have going on in the Four Corners area and national connections, because we do have a lot of national connections. And yeah, just remember, it's not Hollywood. It's a movement, you know? Yeah. So really, like, you know, stay humble, stay grounded, and, and really just get with it because it has been rolling for many, many years now. Mm -hmm. We're standing on the shoulders of giants here. You know, before us, there were so many, and after us, there will be many. So we really got to keep on this legacy rolling. Yeah. Um, and Ella has a lot of art for sale, so please go buy, buy their, their art. art. It's beautiful. <laughs> I have one hanging. Oh, it's not one that you did, but it's, it's there's the mural. a big mural yeah. of Ella <laughs> On what street is that? Is it it's 9th? North Temple. Uh-huh. And about 400 West. Everyone go look at this mural of Ella. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being Thank with you, us Ella. today, Ella. Absolutely. Truly. It was a pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for having Yay. me. Yay. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Silenced American. Listen to future episodes to hear about other impacts DACA has in this season. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. If you'd like to donate to helping undocumented community members in Utah, visit our website at thesilencedamerican.com and click the donate button. Thank you to 90.9 FM KRCL Community Radio for sharing their studio with us. And shout out to our audio producer, Peter Lara. Till next time.